Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. It looks happy to me. And so if you're going to obey in that moment when it counts the most, you are taking a large risk. You are wagering your happiness on God's promise. Obedience when it counts the most is always a risk. You're wagering your preference on the possibility that what God is commanding will have a happier ending. And in this sense, the missionary who goes overseas, even though that missionary wants to protect his family, goes to Afghanistan and puts his family in danger, that obedience, that's a risk. To him, to his natural mind, it's better to stay here in safety. But if God has called the man, he goes, he risks because God has called him. And in exactly the same way, the person who all their life craves the adventure of missions, to being out there on the field, the real Christian life, they think, and they are called by God to be a housewife here, that is a risk to stay and be a faithful housewife here. And you're wagering that if God has called you here, He will bring happiness into your life. Obedience when it matters most is always risk. And because risk is what throws flavor into life, obedience is what gives flavor to the Christian life. It's not something that creates a dull monotony to just obey the rules of the Bible. It's not that at all. It is what adds flavor. It's what makes the plot line of your life interesting, is this risk of obedience to God. If you want to deeply enjoy Christ, to be satisfied with Christ and no more, you will have to risk obedience. Now, if you disagree with any of this logic so far, that's okay. We're turning to Scripture now. I just wanted to give you a sort of perspective as we enter into this of what obedience is as a, as a risk. We have been talking really in this course about being satisfied with Christ. I have urged you to make Christ your only aim. I have tried to show you from Scripture that to do so will lead to your happiness. I have tried to show you some practical ways that that could look in your life, Christ acting, speaking in your life through His Word. But the question that we're asking now is, okay, I want that. I want to be satisfied in Christ. What do I do? How do I become satisfied in Christ? And that is why we come now to this matter of obedience. For the beginning of an answer, we are turning to John chapter 14. If you have your Bible, I want to focus on verse 21, John 14, 21. But the two verses that follow are pertinent, so we'll read those also. Jesus is speaking here with his disciples, and he talks about love and obedience. I'm beginning in 21 then. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's obedience, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, here's the promise, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and 
manifest or reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Why are you showing yourself to us and not to everybody? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, obey. And here's the promise, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. I've said that the missing ingredient in our enjoyment of Christ is not his love for us, which has no fault. It is our love for him. And I suppose that this entire class has been no more than an attempt to stir up the embers of our love for Christ so that we enjoy him and are satisfied. This passage I've just read speaks of this very thing, our love for Christ. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. There's love for Christ. It also speaks of what we've been talking of, this near living relationship with Christ. I will manifest, reveal myself to that person. And later, we will come to that person and we will make our home. The Father and Jesus will make our home with that person. These are appealing promises. What more could you ask for? And they belong to those who love Christ. But notice the nature of love for Christ. Because someone can say, I love Jesus. Anyone can say that, in fact. It's easy to say that. Many will say they love him. But not find any kind of satisfaction in him. You ask, why? If they love him, why do they not find satisfaction in him? And the answer is because they do not love him. To the degree that any person here does not find a satisfaction in Christ, to that degree, your love for Christ is lacking. And so you say, well then, I want to grow in my love for Christ. How do I do that? That is the question that we are answering. And Jesus answers it in part here. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is who not just says he loves me, that's the one who really loves me. This person who obeys, who keeps the commandments, that's the person I will manifest, reveal myself to. Certainly at the point of conversion, which is probably mainly in view here, but progressively as well. Christ reveals himself to the obeyer, this clearer side of Christ This greater love, it all goes back to whoever has my commandments and keeps them to obedience. They are tied to that risk of obedience. Now, I want to make a point about this that is complicated. And I hope you don't misunderstand me. I will try to go slowly and speak carefully. But what I'm interested here, what we're interested in here, is okay, here are the groups, the one who obeys, The one who loves, and Jesus says those two are the same. Whoever loves, whoever obeys, whoever loves, those are the same whoever's. But what we're interested in is what is the exact connection between the obeying and the loving? So we're going to try to understand that. Now, logically, 
if I asked you this question one-on-one, you would probably and rightly answer, our obedience comes from loving Christ. Here's love, and so we obey. And logically, that is absolutely true. This passage doesn't tell us that, but verse 15 just before does. says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you keep my commandments, you will love me. It's not love coming from obedience, but it's obedience that comes out of love. But I want to say something else by way of emphasis that is a little difficult to understand. And I'm wrestling with it alongside with you. And that is that while logically your love for Christ leads to obedience, in our actual experience, love and obedience are more closely connected than that. So you could say, logically, obedience comes after love, And that's true. You're not going to obey if you don't love Christ. But chronologically, that is, in terms of time, in terms of your day-by-day experience, love happens with obedience. They're together. Now, to highlight my point, I want to quote a somewhat difficult passage, but bear with me, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may be familiar with that name. He was a German pastor And during World War II, he opposed the Nazi regime, and therefore he perished at their hands just before the war ended. And his most well-known book is The Cost of Discipleship. Now, he is going to talk about the exact connection between obedience and faith while we're talking about obedience and love. But the way that he uses faith is almost the same as we're using love. Because Christ is invisible, if you're going to love him, you have to have faith in him, right? And inversely, you cannot have faith in him without really loving him. Then you're just like the demons who have a fake faith. So faith and love here, I want you to see those as almost the same thing. Now I want to point out the connection that Bonhoeffer is going to make, and then we'll turn to scripture to see that same connection. Here's what he says. Love and obedience, he says, faith and obedience. We think we understand when we hear that obedience is only possible where there is faith to us, love. Doesn't obedience follow faith as good fruit grows on a good tree? First faith, then obedience. That is, logically, doesn't that happen? He says, if by that... We mean that it is faith which justifies and not the act of obedience, all well and good. Meaning, if you're thinking of that logically, not in time, but logically, you're justified by faith, not works. We believe that. Don't stop believing that. That's absolutely essential logically. But notice what he says going on. If, however, we make a chronological time actual experience, distinction between faith and obedience, and make obedience come after faith in time, we're divorcing the one from the other. And then we get the practical question, when must obedience begin? 
obedience remains separated from faith. From the point of view of justification, logically, it's necessary to separate them like that. Perfect. But we must never lose sight of their essential unity. For faith is only real when there's obedience, never without it, and faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. So to put that in the terms we're using in this lesson, love is only real when there's obedience, never without it, and love only becomes love in the act of obedience. Now Bonhoeffer is talking specifically about the instant someone believes. And the argument he's making is, is it possible for you to really believe in Christ and since works follow after, not obey for, say, two or three years? Is that possible? It's not possible. Even though the works do come from the faith logically, but in time, they happen together. Obedience comes logically, but there's a closer connection than we can wrap our arms around. And that's what Jesus is saying here about love and obedience. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, obedience, he's the one who loves me. You can't have one without the other. These might be difficult thoughts, but they're the very ones expressed in that very difficult second chapter of James. You remember that passage? Remember how that godly writer speaks of a faith without works, that it's dead, it's useless? And then he writes this shocking line to us who know justifications by faith. He says, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And you will stumble all over that passage if you don't make the same distinction. That is what Paul says in Romans is logically obedience comes out of faith. Faith comes first. You don't obey and then you're saved. Faith comes first, logically. But chronologically, in your actual experience, you can't just have faith without obedience being there as well. It's impo- That's what James is saying. You say, oh, I believe the demons believe and they shudder. That's not real. That is a dead Workless faith. It's not even real faith. That's what James is saying. So we know logically Abraham's justified not by works. He's justified by faith, logically. And Abraham, it says, believed faith, the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Yet because that faith produced immediately this inclination to obey, which we see as he offers up Isaac, James can say, without that inclination to obey, it wasn't really faith to begin with. Faith works together. For us, love works together. And that's how James concludes that. You see that faith, we'll say love, faith was active along with his works together. And faith was, this is what James says, or I wouldn't say it, He says, it was completed or perfected by the works. You're justified by faith alone, logically. It's not your work. But chronologically, 
in time, in your experience, you're not going to be having faith in Christ and living a life of disobedience. And to our point, you're not going to be having this warm love for Christ and living in disobedience because love and obedience are more closely connected than that. They support each other. John MacArthur spent a long time fighting against those who would divorce, as Bonhoeffer said, divorce these ideas of faith, or we'll say love, and obedience. There were some in our country, especially in Dallas Theological Seminary, who a few decades ago were so intent on preserving free grace that salvation, justification, is by faith alone, and they're right, logically, that they then chronologically separated the two, and it was a disaster. And John MacArthur fought hard against it. We call it the lordship controversy. And John MacArthur's point was, even though logically, yes, but if there's not an obedience in your life toward Christ, then there's no faith. Because chronologically, they happen together. You can't separate them. So why should we talk about something like this that's a little bit confusing? And it is because, to go back, we're interested in the exact relationship between obeying Christ and loving Christ. And why are we interested in that? Because of this. You say, I want to be satisfied in Christ. And I say, well, you need to love him more. And you say, well, what do I do? How do I love him more? And what I don't want you to do is to say, well, I can't grow until he puts more love in my heart, so I'm just going to sit here until he does that. And that's wrong. That's the wrong thing to do. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, they need to believe. God must give them faith as a gift. So do you say to the person you're sharing the gospel with, look, there's nothing you can do. God's got to give you faith as a gift. So I'd recommend, don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Go about your life. And if someday God decides of his own free grace to just give you this gift, awesome. If he doesn't, sorry about that. Is that how you share the gospel? Is it logically true that faith comes from God as a gift? Yes. But there is a responsibility on the part of the person to believe in time. Those are connected together to believe and then to obey. And that's why we're talking about this. I'm trying to keep you from the pothole of inactivity, of saying, well, I can't really... Talking about being more satisfied in Christ, and there's nothing I can do about that. God just has to give me more love, so I'll just wait till he inflows love into my heart. Don't do that. That's bad. That's not what you want to do. Is it true that obedience flows from love, so you've got to have more love before you obey? Yeah, it's true. Is it true that because only God can give you that love, just do whatever you want, and if he gives it, he gives it? Don't worry about it. No, that's not true. Logically, yes. Chronologically, no. Obedience and love come together. James made this claim that Abraham's faith was perfected by his obedience. And I'm speaking mysteries here, okay? So bear with me, but we can think of your love in very similar terms. Your love for Christ is in one sense completed, to use James' term, by obedience. There is an inner working whereby obedience in some way upholds love. 
The two are often happening at the same time. Love increasing while you obey. Obedience happening while your love grows. They're connected so that Jesus' words, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, obedience, he's the one who loves me. And those are closely interconnected. Two groups. Do you love Jesus? Do you obey Jesus? Those are the same. Same people in both categories because those are very interconnected. The lovers of Christ are the obeyers of Christ and the obeyers of Christ are the lovers of Christ. So if you want to see love for Christ flourish within your soul, here's something you can do. Obey. Set yourself to obey Christ. And lest you sniff a little legalism here, just think of why you have John 14, 21 in your Bible. Why is it there? He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Why does Jesus say that to his disciples? It's an exhortation. It's to get his disciples to obey. He says, you say you love me? Well, you know, he it is who really loves me. It's the person who's obeying. So obey. You see, it's an exhortation, and that's how you should read it. If you want your love to grow for Christ, obey. James is saying the same thing in the first chapter of his epistle. Remember this famous passage. But be doers of the word, not just hearers, deceiving yourselves. And Someone would object, well, I have no control over that. If obedience comes from my love for Christ then I can't just start being a doer of the word. I have to wait until Christ fills my heart with love. And then when that happens, I can be a doer of the word. I wish James were here and you could try to tell him that. (laughs) He would not be happy to hear it. Just a few verses afterward, James says, but the one being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his Doing, you want the blessing of more love for Christ and deeper satisfaction in Him? Don't just wait for it to happen. Obey, and you will be blessed in your obeying. The love will come in as you're obeying. You say, I just have a little love and it compels me to obey, but it should be this big love. That's fine. Take the little love. It compels you to obey. So obey, and as you're obeying, the little love becomes a bigger love. Those two are connected together. I'm not saying anything more than what Paul said to the Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, he's telling them, obey. They say, well, we can't obey unless this love happens. No, here's why you obey. Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The reason you take active steps of obedience is not because God already worked in you and now it just magically happens, but you're taking those steps because you know that as you're doing that, God is working love in you. And that's one significant way that your love for Christ grows. By just obeying. God is working in you, producing love. What is your response? Not to wait for love to enter in and take over control of your body to force you to obey. 
You need to take control of your body and obey. And once you obey, you'll look back and realize, whoa, that was God working in me. And logically that's true, but in the moment of the experience, it looks like you doing it. It looks like you just throwing away your computer so you don't look at pornography. That's what it looks like in the moment. You say, well, I should love Christ so much that I just want to do that, but I don't really want to do that. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. If you want to love Christ just with the little want that you have, throw it away. Get rid of it, and then you'll want to obey more. Say, I live with my boyfriend, my girlfriend. I don't I want to move out because I know it's wrong, but I don't want to. So I'm just kind of waiting for God to really convict me of this. He, right now, right now is when he's convicting you. See, you hear this? It's his word, and he's saying, obey. And as you move out, pack up your stuff, you move out, that's when love is growing in you. I just always yell at my kids. I can't get a hold of my temper. Well, pray that God helps you and do what you got to do to get a hold of your temper. And as you're doing that, love flows in, grows. It's a miracle, but it's true. If it helps you at all to think of this by a sort of picture, then here's a picture. You can think of this almost as a family. It's not perfect, but think of it like this. Here's a father and a mother. Love each other. They have two young sons, older and younger. Parents love each other. Parents love their sons. Older son loves the younger son. Younger son doesn't love anybody. How do you know that? Well, because when mom says to the older son, hey, go clean your room, the older son goes and he cleans his room happily because you see there's love there. And the mom says to the younger son, hey, go clean your room. Younger son huffs, crosses his arms, looks away, marches away, doesn't clean his room. He doesn't love the parents. And his sibling says, hey, you want to come? No, he doesn't love the sibling. The sibling and the parents love him. So you see this kind of family circle of love. Ooh, great family circle. And it breaks right here. Is this child being loved? Yes, it's flowing. But is the child loving in return? No, because there's no obedience. Now, If this child is going to unbreak the family circle of love, is going to do the right thing and love his family, what is that going to look like? Okay, Is that going to be this younger son, all of a sudden, wow, feels an incredible love for his family and continues huffing, puffing, marching away, hitting his sibling, speaking back to his parents, but inside, man, he loves them so much. No, no, because in real life experience, you can't separate him obeying his parents now from him actually loving them. Is it going to be that all of a sudden, total transformation, the younger son obeys from the heart, willingly his parents, everything they ask him, but he hates their guts. He hates them so much. But obedience from the heart. But I hate, no, because you see how love and obedience here go together. And that is very similar to what we have in our relationship with Christ. Christ's love for you 
that you're receiving, it's not faulty. Yours for him is faulty, and to the degree there's not obedience, that's how faulty it is. So if you want to see love, oh man, I want to see love for Christ produced in me, then you start obeying because those go together. The mystery of it is this. If you have even just a little love that compels you to obey, then on the basis of that little love, obey, and then the little love becomes a bigger love. To put it in layman's terms, this is what we call fake it till you make it. <laughs> Seriously, an important principle of the Christian life. You may be discouraged from some act of obedience you know you should be taking because to you it feels like, it feels like, Ah, it's too hard. This should just come naturally as a Christian. I should just want to out of love for Christ. And so even if I obey now, it's not going to mean anything because I don't feel this love for Christ. Well, look, in that case, you have two options, right? Option number one, if you're not feeling it, then just don't do it. Just don't obey and just wait to start feeling it. That's one option. Option number two you're not feeling it, but there's at least something in there that's pushing you toward it. So just do it. Take the step of obedience. Fake it until you make it. And if you do that, you probably will make it. The feelings will probably follow the act of obedience because they move along hand in hand together, love and obedience. You can't expect your love to just start progressing and your obedience is back here. It hasn't done anything. But if your obedience progresses, usually love comes with that. Therefore, you just obey. For a final illustration here of this point, I want to use somebody who really lived in history. George Mueller, as you may know, was an Austrian pastor who lived in London in the 1800s. And he is known for his care of orphans. In his day in London, there was an epidemic of sorts of orphans who needed to be cared for. And here is George Mueller, a very poor man, simple pastor, smaller church. And there he is in London, sees the need. And what does he do? He does not sit and think, oh, if I just loved these orphans more, if I just loved Christ more, I'd, I would be compelled to care for them. So I'm going to wait, maybe say a little prayer, and I'm just going to wait here until this great love for Christ overwhelms me and I'm going to go out and conquer. It's not what Mueller did. Mueller sees the need, sees that obedience to Christ for him means meeting that need. So he goes about to meet that need. He takes the steps of obedience. And because he believed that caring for these orphans was obedience for him, he believed God would provide as long as he walked in obedience. And so it was Mueller's conviction that he never asked anyone for a penny of support. He opens two, at least two in his lifetime, large orphan houses, cares for hundreds of orphans, all on the basis of people just spontaneously, by God's prompting, giving, never ask for support. So rather than waiting for love to just appear, he does something, he obeys. And what is the consequence of his obedience? This is what he writes. This way of living, this risky, trying to care for these people without any promise of future support, just waiting on the, trusting in the Lord here, this risky, this way of living brings the Lord remarkably 
near. He is, as it were, morning by morning inspecting our stores that accordingly he may send help. Greater, here is our class in essence. This is what we want right here. Greater and more manifest nearness of the Lord's presence I have never had than when, after breakfast, there were no means for dinner. And then the Lord provided the dinner for more than a hundred persons. Or when, after dinner, there were no means for the tea. It's England. And yet the Lord provided the tea. And all this without one single human being having been informed about our need. You see that great risk of obedience. It makes more sense to just wait until you're inspired and you have all the funds provided for you and then. But he takes the risk of obedience where he believed God was calling him to this ministry and he obeys. And what is the consequence The Lord's nearness. He uses that exact word from John 14. That the Lord's nearness was never more manifest than when he was in the risky position of obedience. John 14, 21. He who loves me, person obeying, like Mueller here, I'll love him and I'll manifest myself to him. So friends, I'm standing beside you as one who equally with you desires a greater love for Christ. I want to walk with him like Enoch of old. And I have so far in this course laid out what that may look like in our lives. And now here is a how. I have, I hope, set before us a manner in which we can actually see some progress in our love for Christ and our satisfaction in Him developing. We are justified by the blood of Jesus, not our obedience. Praise the Lamb or we'd all be lost. But Jesus gave His blood to take away your sins. That is to take away their penalty, but also to actually take them away. To get us to obey, not just the guilt, but the power of them. So this is how you look at sin in your life. It is barbed wire. Christ is on the other side of it. There he is. There you are. You don't just wait to get to him. You take your big clippers. You go out onto the battlefield and you start clipping the barbed wire. And you know what? When you do that, you know what happens? The barbs, they cut you. It doesn't feel good to put your sin to death or to obey, to take that risk. But once you've done that, despite the pain, you move the wire aside and you take a few steps closer to Christ. And that is the appeal of this lesson. In our desire to love Christ more, we can't just be meditative, contemplative monks all by ourselves waiting for the love of God to fill us. We have to go obey. There's something you need to go do. Maybe you know what it is right now. You need to go do that. And in doing that, you're cutting the wire. You're stepping closer to Christ. Maybe for you it's as simple as you need to start listening to your wife when you get home from work in the evening. She's been telling you, you don't listen. You know it's true, but your justification is you're tired. You know what? Jesus was tired when the crowds kept him up all night, and then he went and he prayed. So you need to start listening to your wife. And when you do that, you're snipping the wire. You're moving closer to Christ. Your love for him increases. Maybe it's waking up a bit earlier. You hit the snooze five times. 
hit it two times and get in the word in the morning. And maybe that's the obedience God is calling you to right now. I don't feel like getting up. I don't feel a love. You'll feel the love after you get up. Just get up. (laughs) Sharing the gospel in your workplace, same thing. You take the clippers and you cry, I love, help my unlove. And God will help your unlove as you obey. And it's only in this way that you learn the truth that Christians have for a long time sung about. That we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor He shows, for the joy He bestows, are for them who will trust and obey. Let's pray. Oh God, we have the desire to know You and You have told us that if we really want to know You, we're going to have to obey. That if we're really going to love You, we need to obey. If we want You manifest to us, we need to obey. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to just do it, but You have given us wills and in whatever mysterious way You call us to enact them, to put them into action in obedience, and I pray that we would embrace the risk of it that we might reach out and try to share the gospel at risk of it going so badly and that we might choose to express ourselves to our spouses at risk of being laughed at because of the sudden change, that we might go overseas to difficult places where the gospel is not heard at risk of our lives and our whole family's lives because that is where Christ is that our love for you would grow. Please show us clearly what you are calling us to. Help us to take definite and real steps of obedience even this week. And I pray that you would, as we open our mouths wide, would fill them, that you would open the storehouses of heaven and pour upon us a blessing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. You have one minute for questions. Sorry. We have... (laughs) We'll take just one question here from Mr. Glant. Good question. That's a, great, that's a great question. Joel is asking, so I made a comment about humans having a responsibility to say yes to the gospel, to respond with repentance and faith to the gospel. But how does that work? Because if you have a responsibility to respond in faith and repentance to the gospel, isn't that a sort of work by which you're earning salvation? It's a great question. So this is a question of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, and especially in the work of salvation. So when in Scripture you get to Acts, um, I think it's four here, Peter is preaching, and he says concerning Christ, this man delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God and his predetermined plan, their sovereignty. You crucified. And when he says you crucified, he's saying that like, You're bad. Like, that was bad for you to do that. And everybody understood that. To us, it doesn't make sense because, wait, this was God's predetermined plan 
you crucified, well, how can we blame you because it was the plan? But that's really when we talk about divine sovereignty, human responsibility, somehow they coexist, and we're not entirely sure how. Spurgeon talked about those two things, like two parts of a railroad track, and they're right next to each other. From our human perspective, they run next to each other. You see, they don't touch. They both exist, but we don't know how. But if you watch them out into the distance and the horizon, they appear to come together eventually, and that's God's mind. Somehow they come together. So practically, when we're sharing the gospel with someone, we are calling them to their responsibility of repentance. And at the same time, so there's one track, and at the same time, we're always recognizing if they fulfill their responsibility, it's because God did it in them. It can't happen apart from that. That's why it's still by faith God's work. So I wish I had more. No, we don't. Sorry, we'll close it out here. Here.